Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are studying through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we are on our 13th week. We've been taking a chapter at a time. And so as we've been going a chapter at a time, we kind of hit the chapters in a broad sense. So while we would want to maybe <clears throat> each week dive in on some things, we've uh, taken a bigger approach. And so uh, if you remember... The way we've been looking at it is, uh, we've called this messy church because as we've been looking at 1 Corinthians, they were quite indeed uh, messy, quite sinful, had lots of things going on. Uh, in the first six chapters, uh, there was a lady named Chloe had, that had reported to Paul n- numerous things that needed to be addressed. And so Paul in the first six chapters addresses those things that are wrong. And then chapter seven is the turn where they had asked Paul several things. They had written a letter and Paul starts writing a letter, answering things that they want to know, like marriage, food sacrifice to idols, Lord's Supper, uh, head coverings, etc. And we've come into the, the chapters 12 through 14. And that section is a question they had about spiritual gifts, specifically even tongues, and how that works. And so Paul, we looked at last week, uh, was talking about spiritual gifts. And in chapter 14, he will continue talking about spiritual gifts. And specifically in chapter 14, how to exercise those things in an orderly way in your, in your gathering. But as we're looking uh, at verses, or chapters 12 through 14, we're looking at 13 today where it seemingly looks like Paul is kind of talking about gifts and then takes this excursus over to talk about love and then come back and talks about gift, but that's not actually the case at all. Uh, this chapter 13 is perfectly placed by Paul right in the middle as a uh, kind of love sandwich where you have the, the bread uh, of spiritual gifts and the, the meat of it being love. And so it's not an accident that we are looking at chapter 13 at all as we're looking through spiritual gifts into love and then back into spiritual gifts. It's quite intentional and hopefully you'll see why. So uh, let's stand if you're able and read the text together and then as I read it, um, we will... Uh, afterwards say thanks be to God I'll say this is the word of the Lord you'll say thanks be to God and that's just all of us signifying that we believe that these are God's words and that these are God's words delivered to us and so as we hear them by saying thanks be to God we're thanking him for giving us his word and even in a sense saying we want to put ourselves under the authority of word and obey the things that it says so let's read together Uh, chapter 13 verse 1 if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love I'm a noising gong or a clanging cymbal If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things. Hopes all things, endure all, all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial shall pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I came a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. It's the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We're going to pray. And before we pray, I also want to just remind us all that we want to pray also for the people over in Texas. As of my last understanding of watching the news, there have been two deaths thus far. Massive damage probably into the billions eventually. Um, There's still likely another... 100 to 120 hours of rain that will continually happen right now until Wednesday at least. It'll keep raining. 
And so depending on where you are from the coast up to Houston, you'll receive somewhere in the neighborhood, they will receive somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 up to 35 inches of rain. And so uh, this is a ton. This is a great opportunity for the church to respond, not just locally in the Texas area, but also all over the states. And so we want to pray that even we would be thinking about how we can respond, but pray certainly that the Lord would use tragedies like this um, to point people to Christ and that he would use it that people would be saved. And of course, Christians and non-Christians that have lost lost things will be ministered to by the church. So it's a great opportunity for the church to be the church. So uh, let's pray for today and then pray also for them. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for an opportunity we have to gather together as a church. Thank you that we can pray corporately. Um, a lot of countries don't allow Christians to do that, and so thank you for that. And we do pray specifically for this hurricane, Harvey, in Texas, and even the outlying tornadoes that have happened around there. And we pray that um, in the midst of this horrific event that happens <clears throat> this time of year in some area of the United States, that it would serve as its real reminder that we, we live in a fallen world and that these kind of things point us to the fact that the world is fallen and that we should hate sin like you hate sin. And so I pray, Lord, that we would all reflect on that and think on that and that we would look to you not just as our source of hope and compassion in the midst of suffering, but also as our only source of forgiveness of all of our sin. And so we pray that the church would be the church and they would lead people to Christ through this and they would lead people also in the midst of tragedy to help them rebuild their lives, help them uh, love their children and give them medical supplies and food and water. And God, that even in the midst of horrific things like this, that um, Christ would be made known and people would cross over from death into life. Be with us now as we study your word. I pray for help that I'll speak truthfully and honestly and uh, everything I say will be helpful. And Lord, that everyone here, including myself, will have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're looking at 1 Corinthians 13, one of the keys I want to make sure we understand is that we understand it in context. John Piper talking about sermons and reading the scriptures. He said, virtually all sermons from the Bible are sermons on love. Its foundation, the Bible is its, or, and love is its foundation or it's its empowerment or its nature or its forms or its incentives or its goals. Everything is related to love. And so as we come to 13, this is maybe the pinnacle of the Bible when it comes to love. Blomberg commenting on this chapter says, Popular culture, literature, music, advertising, visual arts um, uses the word love to mean just about everything except what the Bible means about it. So we want to do this. <clears throat> Take our preconceived ideas and throw those away. We don't bring our preconceived notions into the scriptures to understand love. Instead, we throw those things away and we come in and we let the Bible teach us about love and take those things about love out into the culture. We don't bring them and import them into the Bible. We also need to read it in context. Gordon Fee says, the love affair with this chapter, which, you know, it's not wrong to necessarily have it read at your marriage. Don't feel bad if you did and you realize that maybe it's not so much about marriage, but it's about spiritual gifts and exercising those spiritual gifts in the act of love. But he says, to lo- the love affair with this chapter has allowed it to be read regularly away from its context, which can cause one to miss Paul's concern for the church in Corinth to be loving, and then thereby the church in Rock Hill, Remedy, and every church, to be loving. And so the, the goal here, as we read it, is the exercise of spiritual gifts. So if you remember, if we look at 12, look at verse 7. 
I think verse 7, he tells us that everyone receives gifts and everyone receives gifts for the common good. This is chapter 12, verse 7. He tells us that everyone that's a Christian receives these things and we receive these things for the common good. And you can see, see the, the list of gifts starting at verse 8. Utterance of knowledge, um, the utterance of wisdom or faith or gifts of healing, working of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues. He gives us this list and you can see another list in Romans 12 and another list in Ephesians 4. And so he has this list. And so as we're going into chapter 13, what you'll notice right away is that he's taking the things that he just said in 12 and saying, if I have those spiritual gifts and you get here, but I don't have love, I'm missing the point. So you can see it in verse 1. If I have, speak in tongues, but I don't have love, then. If I, verse 2, if I have prophetic powers or knowledge or faith, that's spiritual gifts, and I don't have love, I don't understand the point of having the gift. So the context, as we read in 1 Corinthians 13, is right on the heels of God's given you these gifts, and as you use these gifts, they absolutely need to be used in a manner in which we understand as love. Now I want to blow up your categories really fast before we go into. Every time you see the word love in chapter 13, it's agape. Agape. So if you've studied the four loves from C.S. Lewis, Storge, Eros, uh, Phileo, and Agape, we, we, we categorize out the word love to have certain meanings. But those are classical Greek. So classical Greek wants us to categorize the word love out. This is written in Koine Greek. And so Storge, like uh, familial love, love for your family members, or Eros, the, the, the love that would be shared between a married couple, they're not even in the Bible. The only two words that are in the Bible are phileo and agape. And these two things, <clears throat> by the time Koine Greek was written, were very um, this much the same word. For us, it's just like the word love is kind of multifaceted and all-encompassing. Same here. So when you hear agape, we don't think, oh, that's the unconditional love that God has for us. How can I ever attain to that? We can attain to that. And when he's, re- he's using the word agape over and over in here, it's on purpose. And by the way, we can do that. Just like we can exercise the fruit of the Spirit, which all the way, also the first one is love, joy, peace, patience. That love, that's agape, which we have. So we are capable of loving in this manner, this agape love that we, that we're, that's been given to us. We are capable to do this because God gives this love to us and we are able to love others like God loves us. And this is given to us and that we're capable to do this precisely because of the gospel. Precisely because of the good news. John three sixteen. For God so loved us that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him, believes in Jesus, receives eternal life. And then, since we have received eternal life, we also have this ability now, because of the spirit placed inside of us, to love like God. 1 John 4, 7 through 11 says it this way. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So whoever loves has been born of God, that means they're now the child of God, they're a Christian, and if that's the case, they know God. Anyone who does not know God, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is love that, and this is the love of God was made manifest among us, that talking about Christ, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, that we have Not that we have loved God. That's easy. It's really easy for us to love God. He's perfect. He's all-knowing. He's benevolent. He's all-benevolent. So it's really easy for us to love someone who's all-loving. The opposite is hard. For him to love us. And he says, so if you want to understand love, this is love. Not that we love God. That's easy that we would love God. But that he loved us. Even when we were choosing to be willful enemies of him. 
that he would love us. And not only love us, send us his son so that his son would die for us to be the propitiation or the wrath bearer that we rightly deserve for us. Beloved, if God so loved us and in that state and saved us and forgave us of all of our wretchedness and he did that for us, then he says, we also ought to love one another. So we have this unbelievable ability to agape love as 1 Corinthians 13 commands us precisely because God has saved us and put in us the Holy Spirit, God himself. Now we have the ability to love others in the exact same way that God loves us. This is astounding. This is absolutely astounding. So as we go through uh, this chapter, there's really three things. Uh, If you look at the last verse in chapter 12, it says, and I will show you still a more excellent way. So he's wrapping up the idea on spiritual gifts, and he goes, I want you to understand how to exercise these spiritual gifts. I will show you a more excellent way. So the the title of this sermon is The More Excellent Way. And there's three things, or three distinctions, or three understandings about love that we need to see in this text. So the more excellent way, the first thing that we need to know, you can go ahead and put up number one, is the necessity of love. He says this in verses one through three, and by doing this, he gives three Uh, examples to make his point. Uh, Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3 are the examples. Uh, Now, I put the parenthetical in gifts because it's necessary for us to exercise our our, our love while we use the gifts, but I have it parenthetical because also (laughs) it's necessary for us to exercise love at all times, whether we're specifically using our spiritual gift at that moment or just in general, right? So the necessity of love in your life is absolutely key, parentheses, especially when you're using your gifts. So you'll see the three examples that he has here. Um, But before we go into it, I want to read one theologian. He says, The full impact and depth of the truths of this text cannot be discovered in isolation. Much of the power and even the purpose and beauty is missed when the passage, chapter 13, is studied out of context, which is the local church. The local church. So chapter 13 has always been given to us to think about and how we interact with each other not just our family, yeah, it applies to our family, not your coworkers, but inside the local church body. And as I said, uh, coming off the heels of chapter 12, he's going to list out spiritual gifts. He lists four here um, in, cha- in verses 1 through 3, tongues, prophecy, the, the knowledge, wisdom, and faith. And, and in essence, you could substitute any, uh, <clears throat> any gift not listed in here, and you would still get the point the same. So let's look at it. In verse 1, he lists... The, the gift of tongues. The first example is the clanging symbol. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. Now, um, it's always been my dream to preach 1 Corinthians. And, and when we get to 1 Corinthians 13, I always wanted to be able, as I'm preaching through it, to walk over to the drum set and pick up the drumstick and just destroy the clanging symbol and say, you're awesome. You're so great. God loves you. And try, you try to hear what I'm saying. But alas, in God's sovereignty, we're in this building without a drum set. And so just picture that how bad I want to beat the mess out of a symbol right now as I say you're awesome, right? And the whole point would be illustrated, right? That, <laughs> that you would not hear me very well, right? You would hear me, but you wouldn't hear me very well. So that's the clanging symbol. And Paul begins with this by saying, if I speak in the tongues of men, which is the spiritual gift of tongues, speech inspired by the Spirit, unknown by the speaker, but must be interpreted, or if I speak in the... the Tongues of angels, <clears throat> not a lot of description of what that means, but it's communicating in the dialect of heaven. Not necessarily for sure what that's saying. Uh, but if I do that, and I do it, but I don't have love while I do it, then I'm just a noisy yong or a clanging symbol. Now, 
We need to understand what he's saying here, because this is where it gets interesting. The people of Corinth were speaking in tongues, and they were claiming to be spirit people. However, they were doing it without any concern or care to build up the community. Remember, chapter 12, verse 7, spiritual gifts are primarily given to you for the common good, not your own. So, therefore, you're good. Therefore, your sanctification, edification, but primarily for the other people. So, how do you use your gift for other people, not just yourself? Well, they weren't doing this in Corinth, and therefore, whenever they were speaking in tongues... It wasn't that they were unintelligible. Let's make sure we hear what Paul's saying. I want you to feel the full like, punch that Paul has given them in verse 1. He says, if I speak in the tongues of angels I, and I have not love, he doesn't say, then my words are unintelligible. He says, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And here's why this is a punch. Because in the first century, the idea of having gongs and cymbals was associated with pagan worship in the first century. And so he's not saying, if I speak in the tongues of, of men but I don't have love, then my words are unintelligible. He's saying, they're unintelligible. But if I speak this way without love, then I'm basically speaking words for Satan. What I think I'm doing for God, I'm really not doing for God, but doing for Satan. That's the first thing he tells them. And tongues is such a huge thing for them. He's saying, you think tongues is so huge in your church? Most of you are speaking for Satan and not even for God. So pretty big punch there on the first example to make his point of the necessity of love. And then he keeps going into verse 2, and he explains it even more. He moves from the clanging symbol to moving mountains. And if I have prophetic powers uh, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and all faith, so as to, I know it says, remove mountains. The NIV's right. It's move mountains. I'm going to have another NIV moment in a second. Even bigger. But I think it's right. But have not love, I am nothing. Now, I want you to notice the the if and how he he finishes each clause. Verse 1 is... If I speak in the tongues, I'm a noisy gong. Verse 2 is, if I, I am nothing. Verse 3 is, if I gain nothing. So he's, he's moving along in a progression here. But chap, this, this second one is, I am nothing. It's pretty amazing. And notice here, what he does is, um, he, he, he uses the all. All mysteries, all knowledge, all faith. If one person, and he's, and he's using three of the gifts here. Uh, the mysteries of knowledge and faith and uh, uh, prophetic power. So he's using three different gifts listed in chapter 12 now. And basically, uh, what this helping us understand is that you could, you could put anything in there. Uh, you, could sum- you could substitute any kind of gift in there. Any gift that you're using, if you're not using it in love, it's nothing. So the gift of these all does, it's all-encompassing. If one person could embrace, Gordon Fee says, if one person could embrace all the whole range of all the spiritual gifts, and not just have all the spiritual gifts, but also have them to the full measure of the capacity of each one of those gifts, but at the same time failed to act in a loving way towards others as he exercised those gifts, such a person would amount to, textually, nothing in the sight of God. We would think, well, he's doing good work still, but in God's sight, it's nothing. It's nothing in the sight of God. And so, our gifts must be exercised always in loving for the common good, as it says in 12.7. Then he goes to the third example. And here, uh, this is the most extreme example. So he's even moving away from spiritual gifts and just moving into martyrdom. So in verse 3... He's, he's talking about his body being burned. If I give away all that I have and I live my body up to be burned, I know there's a footnote and it says I give my body and to be boasting. I think I the word is really close. Boasting and burned is really close in the Greek. But I think it's burned. I think he's moving into a larger category of even saying to martyrdom. If I move into martyrdom, but I do that in a, in a, in a non-loving way, then I gain nothing. So it's the most extreme example. And he says, 
Um, this, is, this is not set against spiritual gifts. This is just declaring about the absolute supremacy and necessity of love if you're going to be a follower of Christ. If you're willing to have total self-abandonment for the cause of Jesus and martyr yourself, <clears throat> but are not doing it in a loving way, you're not exercising love in the way you're, you're living, you're completely missing the point of being a Christ follower in the first place. That's what he's trying to tell them. Trying to help them understand the necessity of love. Therefore, in your martyrdom, you gain nothing. Your entire life without love doesn't gain you anything. You've missed the point of following Jesus altogether. Now you can say, well then that's works righteousness. That's trust in Jesus and have an act of love the entire time. And then that's how you attain heaven. Is that what you're saying, Fudd? Works righteousness. Trust in Jesus and then act of work, work of love the rest of your life. That's not what I'm saying at all. I don't think that that's the case. And I think that what I'm saying is actually totally congruent with the teachings of Scripture. Which is, if the Holy Spirit resides in us truly because we've been saved, God's living in us and gives us the capacity to love, then since we are saved, we have the absolute ability to love. So this isn't an act of love that we're creating in order to be saved. It's the Holy Spirit working in us, loving other people through us because we already are saved. Maybe this is, I could summarize it this way. Non-Christians should never, ever, on the whole of their life, be more loving than Christians. Because they've never been loved by the most loving being ever. They've never been fully loved like Christ loves us. And so we should be the most loving people there are on the planet. So here's some application questions as we look at the necessity of love. Think about it. You can be responsible for some of accomplishing some of the best things in the world for Jesus. But if the manner in which you do it is not a loving manner, it means nothing. You can accomplish some of the best things in the world for Remedy Church. But if in the manner in which you do it is not loving, you've accomplished nothing. So think of your spiritual gifts that you have. I don't know them. You know them. You know your spiritual gifts. You can look at 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. Think of your spiritual gifts. Are your spiritual gifts done in a loving manner to God's people in his church. Are they done in a loving manner? Even broadening out from just God's people. Are your spiritual gifts done to all people made in God's image? Believers and non-believers. Do you exercise love as you, as you do it? Think of all your good deeds that you do for everyone. Whenever you do this, are they done in a way where the project is more important than the person? Is the project getting the good deed done more important than the person. Then you're missing the whole point. You're exercising your spiritual gift, not for loving's sake, but for yourself. So think of all your good deeds you do for your family and your loved ones and your friends and your, your coworkers or whoever. Are they done in a loving, Christ-honoring way? Or are they just done? Are you just getting them done? We're missing the whole point of what it means to be a believer in Christ. The necessity of love is absolutely important. God has given us these gifts for the common good, and we do it because, and, um, in conjunction with, or with love because that's the whole point of them being given to us. That's the necessity of love in our life. After verses 1 through 3, Paul goes to chapter, or verses 4, and he has this section, uh, 4 through 7. And 4 through 7 is the description of love. Now, I actually take verse 8. Those first three words, love never ends, 
I take verse 8 to be a part of 4 through 7. As a matter of fact, I, this is the way I look at it. So the commentators are going both ways. Like, no, uh, love never ends is actually, it's 4 through 7, and then love never ends goes with the other, or like actually love never ends goes through 4 through 7. I think that Paul is being ambiguous enough that this is what he's doing. He puts it right there so that he says 4 through 7 encompasses love never ends, and then it starts a new section because it's talking about the eternality of love. Love never ends, and then he talks about how all these things will pass away, but love won't in 8 through 13. So I think Paul sticks it there and is like, one day they're going to figure this out in, you know, what, 2017? What are we, 2017? I'm getting old. So, like, I think that Love Never Ends actually is the the 4 through 7 section in 8A, and then 8 all the way through 13. I think it's in both sections, section 2 and section 3. So I am going to stick it in both. Um, And so, in this, he does a description of love in verses, so you can put up point 2. We're looking at the description of love in 4 through 7, and put a little 8A. I meant to put 8A there. Now, as you read through this, David Platt says this. You begin to realize that according to this chapter, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is pride. It is arrogance. It is boasting. It is seeking your own way. To love like we're commanded in this chapter, you have to die to yourself. Platt goes on to say this. I'm going to read it twice. Just make sure we hear it. Love is essentially selfless. It is essentially selfless. And love is inevitably active. Love is essentially selfless. And love is inevitably active. The Bible here doesn't use adjectives to describe love. It uses verbs. Fifteen of them. Sixteen if you think it's me because I think 8a applies. (laughs) The picture here is not words and ideas but deeds and actions. So love is inevitably active. So you can tell people you love them. That's fine. You should. Your wife wants you to. Your husband wants you to, right? We need that. But we don't just tell them. More so, the primary way is not through speech, but through actions. We show them through, through verbs. Love does this. Love does that. Love doesn't do this. Love doesn't do that. The overall picture is clear. It's not conveyed by words as much as it's shown by behavior. Words are fine. Behavior is better. Paul has not set out to define love here. Instead, he set out to apply love in a present continuous tense of verbs showing that the ongoing behavior of ha- habits of people that love. This is what it looks like. So there's 15 things that love is, and if you think 8a applies, 16. So let's look at these. Um, love, the first two are stated positively. Love is patient, love is kind. Love is patient, love is kind. Love is patient, it is long-suffering. There will be a negative of this. We'll look at it in a second. But first he starts off with love is patient. It is long-suffering. Are you long-suffering with people? Love is kind. This is active goodness. Are you actively good to people? After he states those two, and by the way, Jesus has been indescribably long-suffering and kind to us in the gospel by going to the cross for us. Indescribably patient with us and loving and kind towards us, even though we continually might find ourselves uh, sinning. He forgives us. After those two, he has seven things that are not love. Seven ways to not behave. And it says this, love does not envy. Now, this list that Paul is going to go through as we keep going is directly related to the Corinthian church. If you've been studying with us through 1 Corinthians, you're going to see these things right off. So remember chapters 1 through 4 where they're creating rivalries? I like Apollos. I like Paul. Well, I like Jesus. Jesus, you remember that? Like they're creating rivalries. They're creating envious little sections. And Paul's saying, love is not envious. 
Love does not envy. So it doesn't create rivalries. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't boast. This is creating a... Uh, when, when you're boasting, you're, you have an inordinate desire to call attention to yourself and brag about yourself. So are we envious? Are we boastful? He said that love is not arrogant. This is also proud or puffed up. This was a huge problem in the, in the city of court. They were very arrogant. They were very proud of themselves and their knowledge that they had. As you keep going, it says love isn't rude. This means it doesn't defy social and moral standards in disgracing people. It doesn't embarrass people. It doesn't shame people. It doesn't treat people differently. And this is what happens in 1 Corinthians 11 in the Lord's Supper, where the haves are getting there early and they're eating everything, and the have-nots who had to work and get there late saying, sorry, we ate it all already. Love's not rude. It thinks of others instead and shares the Lord's Supper equally, no matter who you are, have or have not. So he says, love's not rude. Love doesn't insist on its own way. It means it's not self-seeking. This is chapters 8 through 10. We're like, I don't care if you're the weaker brother. I'm going to eat this food sacrifice to idol. Forget you. I can exercise my freedom in Christ. Well, love's not self-seeking. It doesn't do that. It foregoes their freedoms in Christ for the sake of the weaker brother. That's how Paul concludes chapter 8. So it means that they're not self-seekers. They're other seekers. They don't insist on their own way at the expense of others continually. Instead, they, they do not insist on their own way. Do you do that? Do you insist on your own way? Are you loving? Now, from here, Paul moves out from the city of Corinth and their specific problems in understanding love and starts getting uh, all-encompassing about how it would uh, relate to everyone in the world. You can see in chapter, uh, verse 5, it does not insist on its way. It's not irritable. This means, just means simply ir- easily angered. This is the opposite of the first one. I said love is patient. I said it's going to say it's negative soon. Here's the negative. This is, means, instead of being patient, you're irritable. You're easily angered. You are not able to forbear with others. Also, it says that love is not resentful. Verse 5, it is not irritable or resentful. Uh, this is my other moment with the NIV. <laughs> Literally, the text is, love does not reckon the evil. So it, ESV says it's not resentful. NIV says it keeps no record of wrong. That's, I think, closer with it does not reckon the evil. It's not reckoning and remembering the evil done to it. It doesn't keep a record of wrong. I think the NIV has it right here. The ESV is missing the, the full sense of what's going on here. Um, and I'm glad the, the NIV is right here because I always liked the NIV growing up, the part that was written there. It says that when you love others, you don't keep the list of wrongs that they've done to you. You don't keep in your mind how to settle the score or try to get even with them one day. Or even worse, you don't wait for them to finally do enough good things back to you so that it finally equals all the good things you've done for them. Imagine that in marriage where you, you keep a record of wrong. <laughs> that won't go well, right? Like, that lasts like one day and they're like, are you really bringing up the things I did wrong? Because I've got a big list of here, that stuff that you did that I can set on the table, right? So love doesn't keep a record of wrong. It doesn't say, you've got to stop doing bad things to me before I start treating you right. Or you've got to finally do enough good things to match the good things I've done before we can move forward in this relationship. It doesn't keep a record of wrong. Do you keep a record of wrong? Do you know who's wronged you and what they've done and do you keep it in your mind locked away? Jesus does not keep a record of wrong. As a matter of fact, he went to the cross to totally 
wipe it away. As Colossians 2 says, it was nailed to the cross. No longer counted against us, but instead the full measure put on him. And now all we know is love from God. Verse 6 goes together, these two. There's two of them, but it goes together. And this is quite interesting. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, as you read that, those don't seem to be opposites, right? The truth would be, uh, the opposite of truth would not be that. It would be falsehood. Or the opposite of wrongdoing would be good deeds. And so it doesn't say, it doesn't say, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but, does, but rejoices in good deeds. And it doesn't say, does not rejoice in falsehood, but rejoices with the truth. But instead, it takes what seemingly are not opposites and says this. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. So what it's doing is taking the concept of things done and the concept of things known and equating the two. So it's not just that you know things and it's not just that you do things. It's, that, it's both. Um, Blomberg says it this way, the antithesis in verse 6 between evil and truth is striking. One would have expected evil and good to be paired or truth and falsehood. But Christian truth and goodness are both cognitive, we know things, and volitional, what we do. It's both. Much lovelessness is based on the loss of one or the other in these aspects. Either we know a lot of stuff, but we don't do good things, or we do a whole lot of good things, but we don't know how to be loving. So Christians do one a favor if they remain pleasant but fail to communicate important truths which neglect at their peril. But all the truths in the world when not transmitted a spirit of sensitivity and compassion is likely to fall on deaf ears. So he puts these two together. The juxtaposition of these two together are absolutely intentional. That we also not just say and know and express these good things through our mouths, but we do these things volitionally as well. That's why those things are together. So this means that when Paul says love rejoices with the truth, he's combating the first century, 21st century, and any century idea that um, inherent evil and wrongdoing are not just what's competing uh, with things, but also ultimately truth is important. So it's not just the things you do, it's what you believe. And all these things are being expressed through the context or the lens of love. So love Verse 6, doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Love will always lead you to the truth. And then he has these, these four things that are very similar in verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never, five things. Love never ends. Do you love, do you bear all things? Do you believe all things? Do, meaning, do you never cease to trust God in all things? Do you hope in all things? Do you never lose hope in God's justice? Do you endure all things? Fee says, Gordon Fee says, life that is so touched by the never-ceasing love of God in Christ is in turn enabled by the Spirit to love others in this exact same way. Do you believe that love never ends? So do you love like this? As this description of verses 4 through 8. Do you love like this? Do you strive in every way to love in such a way, in the exact same way that Christ has loved you? In the same way that Christ has loved you. Platt, looking at this, has an amazing idea or amazing insight. He says this, the key distinction in Christian love is this. It is based on mercy in the lover, not merit in the beloved. It's based on mercy in the lover. So it's based on God having mercy on us to love us, not merit in the beloved, not that they have finally earned themselves up to be lovable. The best description I can think of this is our children, right? They will never, ever pay you back for this, right? There's no amount of money and no amount of diaper change that they'll do to you when you're old that will repay all that you did for them, right? It's not, so the love I have 
at, at, for them at seven months when they're screaming their head off in the middle, mostly Christy, loving their, in the middle of the night, we're like, are you screaming and not going to bed when everybody else's baby goes to bed at midnight, but you don't. So here, the mercy being shown is not merit in the beloved, but mercy in the lover. I love you, not because you have earned anything. <laughs> you've done nothing to contribute to this family. The only thing that you've contributed is to my lack of sleep and my loss of sanity and my pocketbook. I don't have any money. Spending money on diapers forever. But that's maybe the best example I can think of. In other words, do you treat people lovingly because finally they've done something enough to, to make you look awesome? Or they have something that's going to help you in your life? They have an object that you really like or something at their house that you want so you can go, they have the the next gaming system, I don't know, whatever it is, right? So the point is this, love, Christian love, is based on the fact that you mercifully, and I'm not saying that everybody that you love is a child and you're awesome, right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, use an illustration, that we love other people because God has done this exact same thing. In mercy, we had no merit, but he loved us anyway, not because there's something lovely in us, but because he's so unbelievably mercy. And in that same way, that's how you love other people. You don't just love the lovely, you love everyone. That's how we're to love. And so this description given to us of love points us to the fact that we are to love just like God has loved us. We're to love like God loves us. And as we go into verse 8 through 13, now he talks about the eternality of love. Verse 8, love never ends. That serves as the thesis statement for 8 through 13. Love never ends. Now he's going to tell us how. Love never ends. This is what he tells us. In context of spiritual gifts, the whole point is gifts are limited in time and scope. They, eventually, they will not last forever, and the, the vastness of them are all limited. Gifts are limited. Good, but limited. Love is unlimited. Now, let's be sure. Paul is not uh, putting in some kind of polemical sense or against each other, saying that gifts are now uh, against love. That's not what he's doing. He's not setting them up as enemies of one another. Instead, he's just thinking of it this way. There's a road that you're walking down, and this this pathway, gifts and love are lock and step with each other, and they're walking down a path into your life through journey, in the journey of your life. And at one point, the spiritual gifts, as you step into an eternity, will stop, but they've been a good, faithful friend, and then you continue on with love into the end. That's what gifts are for us. They serve us well, pointing us uh, to Jesus, but they will only go down the pathway of our life so long. And at one point, when that pathway ends, love will keep going and gifts will stop. Love never ends. Now he's going to go list some more gifts here. As prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues, they'll cease. Knowledge, it'll pass away. For right now, we know in part, <clears throat> and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So he's helping you understand gifts are going to pass away one day. They're limited in their time and their scope, but love isn't. It's never ending. Verse 8, love never ends. Now, I'm going to take a brief little excursus here because there's, there's something in there that's really theological. I want to make sure we just know that it exists and it's in there or else I wouldn't serve you well. So if you look at verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial shall pass away. Some have taken that as their proof text to say the miraculous gifts, which are healings and tongues, have ceased because the perfect has come. They say the perfect represents the Bible, which came in the third, fourth century. And when the Bible came, that was the ending of the miraculous gifts, such as um, 
gifts such as tongues, interpretation of tongues, and healings. And so those people would call, call themselves uh, cessationists, as in the word ceased. They believe the gifts have ceased, so they are cessationists. Those gifts have ceased. And so they say, since the perfect has come, the Bible, then we are cessationists. We believe that gifts are still around, but not the miraculous gifts such as healing tongues, etc. Now, the other people, they're very originally named. They think that they, they call themselves non-cessationists. I'm being sarcastic. They're not, they're not original. Um, and they just say, well, the perfect is not the Bible. The perfect is Jesus, and he hasn't come yet. And so since Jesus hasn't come yet, um, those things are still in play. Those spiritual gifts, those miraculous gifts of tongues, interpretation of tongues, and healings are still in play. And so they are non-cessationists, and they say, until Jesus comes, those gifts are still happening. Now, I am a non-cessationist, but like, you know, cautious guy, seatbelt non-cessationist, because obviously there's like lots of people who, who misuse it. I've asked God for the miraculous gifts, and he's never given it to me. And I don't know that I'll get them. Probably not. But I do know as we get into 14, the miraculous gifts are, when they come to like importance, are like down here, right? I would rather speak five words of prophecy than 10,000 words of tongues. So tongues aren't very important compared to prophecy, which is what's going on right here. So more important is the proclamation of Scripture than tongues. I, I know that's in 14. I've asked for them. I don't have them. I'm a non-cessationist, you know, with a, with a big caution. Uh, back away from the excursus into the point. Here's the point. Gifts are limited. Love is not. And so he's going to explain that statement that love never ends and that gifts will end by using two analogies. The two analogies are verse 11, the child-man analogy. Verse 12... Am I saying those verses right? Verse 12, the dim mirror analogy. So the first analogy is the, uh, the child man. Now, Paul's not saying that gifts are childish. So let's read it. When I was a child, I spoke, and this has also been, been called out of context to say, you're immature, you talk like a child, but you need to become a man. That's true, but it's an analogy actually about gifts. But here's what he's saying. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up. That's the same verb, by the way, as the pass away and cease in verse 9. Uh, I gave up childish things. So it's not, Paul's not saying that spiritual gifts are childish. Not at all. What he's actually saying is that uh, spiritual gifts are actually completely appropriate to the present life of the church right now. They're completely appropriate because they give us, praise God, a vision or a picture of Jesus. But one day when we step into heaven, we will mature out of, the, in the analogy, childhood into manhood, and we won't need spiritual gifts. And so it's just an analogy saying that gifts are temporary and like childhood, it's temporary for most people and they go into adulthood, right? Um, some people are still children even they're 40. But it's an analogy, right? It's an analogy. The child man analogy. The second analogy he gives is in verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And you're like, what do you mean? Like I, if I look at in the mirror and then I look at face to face, I feel like it's pretty good. Think of it this way. Let's say that someone's standing beside you and you have a mirror in front of you, and it's kind of dim, and you have to look at their face in the mirror, and they're standing beside you. Which is better, looking in that dim mirror or just turning and looking at them right there face to face? Obviously, turning and looking at them face to face is better than trying to see their face through a dim mirror. And that's what he's saying about these spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are like looking in a dim mirror at someone. It means that spiritual gifts give us a present vision of Jesus, but that vision that it gives us is nothing like it will be compared when we actually get to turn and just look at him face to face. So spiritual gifts provide a vision. Praise God. They're good. But nothing like the vision that it'll be in heaven when we see him face to face. So spiritual gifts aren't bad. He's just explaining they're temporary in their time and scope. Love, however, is forever. And then he summarizes this part. 
when he says, then I'll see, I shall see face to face. Let's just let 12b, there's no exposition I can offer. It's straightforward sentence, but it's breathtaking. Listen to what he's saying. It's simply astounding in 12b. Now I only know in part. Then, think of this day. I shall know fully. Look at that. You will know Christ face to face, fully. How so? Think about how Christ already knows you completely. This is what he says. I shall know him fully, even as I have been already fully known. The depth and width and height and breadth in which Christ already knows you because he's God, already knows you, you will experience the exact same knowledge of him then, face to face. There's no exposition. That's just a breathtakingly astounding statement. Picture how much we will know him. How, how we'll see him and know him. And then he says this, verse 13, Now faith, hope, love, abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Why is love the greatest? Here's why. Let's, let's put it into context. You don't need to flip, just listen. It's just one verse. Hebrews 11.1 1 helps us understand faith and hope, right? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We're hoping and we have faith that one day we'll see Jesus. But when we see Jesus, guess what? We see him. So faith and hope aren't needed anymore because we see him. So here, now faith, hope, and love abide these things, but the greatest of these is love. It's, it's almost the exact same thing as I was talking about with tongues, with uh, gifts. This means that faith and hope and love have been given to us. And we are traveling down this road towards eternal glory. And faith and hope have been faithful companions for us on our long journey to finally go home to heaven. But now we do see, but only dimly with faith and hope. We're hoping that we'll see. And when we get to heaven, we will see. Therefore, when we do, these two trusted friends of faith and hope that have been uh, our faithful companions and have served their purpose and we've really enjoyed the gift that they are from God to us, they will not continue with us any longer on the journey into eternity with Jesus. That's good because that means we're going to see Jesus. So it's faith and hope for things you can't see, but now you can see him. And so we'll thank them. Thank you, faith. Thank you, hope. And then we'll step into eternity with just one companion now, love. It will abide with us forever. Our love for Jesus and his love for us will never end, verse 8. It abides forever, verse 13. And the greatest of all these things is love, verse 13. Now let's be sure, because I'm being poetic as I wrote that. The language I'm using is poetic. Love is not a person. Jesus is the person where love is truly and only found, most fully found. And love, Jesus' love for us, is best displayed by his cross where we were saved from our sins. And so, verse 13, now faith and hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest is love because we step into eternity. We no longer have to hope and have faith that we'll see him. We will see him. And what goes into there is Jesus' never-ending, never-ceasing chesed love for us and this knowing that we'll finally have of him when we see him face to face and this depth of love that we'll finally profoundly have for our Savior. That will continue forever. And as Edward would say, with ever-increasing value. That's amazing. So let's, let's conclude this way. 
Um, Jordan, you can come up if you want. Uh, I was talking with Jordan about this, this text this week, and Jordan had this idea, and I was like, oh, I don't know, man, I don't know. I don't know if that's theological enough. I need to make sure it's right. And then I confessed in front of everybody, Jordan was right. It was a, an amazing idea, so good, that it actually serves as the conclusion. If you write sermons, the conclusion is where you try to bring it home, you know what I mean? So I read commentaries, and they're all saying the same thing Jordan said. So Jordan is massive theologian here. So this is what he said. Uh, and this is what all the commentaries said. And I think it's amazing. And it really drives home the depth in which we can understand Jesus in the gospel. Everywhere in verses 4 through 8, you see the word love. The only person that you can put there, the only name that can go there is Jesus. You can't put mine, you can't put yours, you can't put anything else. But you can put Jesus there. And it actually is the same. God is love. Love isn't God, but God is love. And so you can hear it. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not arrogant. He is not rude. Jesus doesn't insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He's not, he does not keep record of wrong. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but Jesus rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes in all things. Jesus endures all things. Jesus never ends. Jesus has done all these things for us perfectly, demonstrated the character of love perfectly for us in the gospel. And because of that, we have now been given the promise of the Holy Spirit, equipped with spiritual gifts, and have been told by this chapter in the Bible that we can love precisely this exact same way. And so when you read this, and when I read it in in second section, we read this, no, I'm not loving. No, I'm not patient. No, I'm 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 always envious. I'm always boasting. I'm always arrogant. And here's the good news. Christ, don't strive to do these things to earn God's favor. Christ has already done all these things for us in the gospel, and then it's given to us in the gospel by Christ because he died for us on the cross. He has done these things for you. And now you are equipped by the Spirit and empowered by these, these spiritual gifts to do these things, and you have the power and ability by the Spirit to have this agape love for other people, precisely because Jesus has done this for us in the, God, in the gospel. So he comes and meets us at our desperate need, enables us now to, ins- to respond differently in all situations, in a Christ-like way. He takes away arrogance. He takes away resent. And he gives us the ability to, instead of responding in anger, respond in love. The context of this is the church, how the church relates to people. And now we have the ability to love as the church should. We're going to go into a time of the Lord's Supper now where we think on this good news that Jesus has done these things for us in the gospel. If you're a believer in Jesus, this time is for you. This is a time for you to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. Come forward and get the bread and get the wine or the juice, bring it back, and we'll corporately take it together, signifying what we learned last week in chapter 12, that we're a body. If you're not a believer in Christ, just observe. If you're not a believer in Christ, observe and hear and see the gospel being displayed in tangible ways. Not a believer in Christ. Trust in Christ now. Believe in Jesus now. Receive forgiveness now for his work on the cross and be saved forever. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for this time where we can study your word as a church and learn about love 
and how to exercise love as your body towards not just our church, but everyone that we come into contact with. Thank you for the supper that's been given to us as a time of commemoration or remembrance of what you've done for us. pray, Lord, that as we go into the time of the Lord's Supper, that we would uh, think on what you've done and give you all the glory that you deserve. Help us be loving people. We pray this in Jesus' name.